So welcome to uh, Quarantine All Access. We have uh, Henry Jackman here. Henry, how are you doing? I'm doing, given the circumstances, I'm doing pretty good, thanks. That's good, good to see you. It's been a while since we've gotten to chat. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, way too long. So, um, so I, uh, for anyone listening, we've done, or watching, we've done a lot of interviews with Henry in the past. So if you wanna go, we're, we're not gonna cover, we're not gonna go over old ground. I'm gonna try to keep it fresh and new for both of our sakes, so. <laughs> I'll try not to repeat myself. <laughs> <laughs> so if you need to learn about how Harry's, uh, Henry snuck out, uh, you know, during, boarding school to watch Predator and all those stories, fun stories, you can go back and watch our old interviews. Exactly. Um, so just before we jump into some projects, I just kind of maybe want to uh, tackle some big picture item, uh, big picture questions that hmm. maybe we'll over, maybe cover some old ground sometimes, but um, let's see, uh, you know, I, I always wanted to know why music, you know, why did you choose music uh, as a career and why not like biology or accounting <laughs> or something like that? What, what made you kind of fall into this path? Well, that's a very interesting question. The, I'd love to give a sort of pompous answer that would highlight all my other multifaceted skills. But if I'm being really honest, if I didn't do music, I'm not quite sure what would be happening. I mean, I'm not sure I'm, I mean, I'm somewhat articulate, but since um, a really early age, you know, I mean, I, I started piano lessons when I was four and whatnot. I, I honestly don't think I'd be that good at anything else, if I'm really honest. I mean, I suppose some of it is my musical education, thanks to my dad, my musical education was really both like eclectic and completely unjudgmental. I mean, he would insist I listen to the Sex Pistols and then insist I listen to like Bartok's Miraculous, Miraculous Mandarin, um, thrusting the score in front of me. Imagine being age seven, trying to follow the score from Reckless Mandarin with these like violin, you know, hyper tuplets and God knows what else. It, it was, um, so I had a really eclectic, whereas in some musicians or composers have to sort of struggle perhaps to break out of expectations from their parents who might, I don't know, might have hoped they were lawyers or doctors or something um, financially safe. My family background was such that there really was nothing else. I mean, my grandfather was a musician, my father was a composer, my uncle was in the King Singers and conducts the, you know, choirs and my other uncle. I mean, that's all there was. So to be anything else actually would have been required a sort of feat of willpower rather than the classic story of like, in order to be a musician, I had to, you know, fight the wishes of my parents and prove everyone wrong. I mean, I honestly can't think that anything else would have happened. I guess I'm, I mean, I'm not bad at writing. I suppose at a real push, I could have been a, a half-baked journalist, perhaps, but I don't, <laughs> I'm not sure. There's plenty of good ones. Um, I mean, yeah, totally good, good, all good points, Henry. Um, uh, so at what point did you decide to relocate your entire life to the United States? Because I've talked to many composers, including oh, others yeah. from the UK, uh, I've talked to John Powell, and, or Daniel Pemberton is a good example. He decided to stay in the UK and build a career there. What, what was the kind of deciding factor that said, okay, I think, you know, leaving my home country and coming to a new place, what was the fact that said, that's definitely what I need to do? Well, at the risk of giving the worst kind of advice to all of your, um, you know, because I know you have a lot of listeners and some of them have uh, a great passion for film music. Some of them are probably thinking about, you know, how to get into it. But without sounding like a hippie, I did absolutely no strategic planning of any kind whatsoever. Everything was an accident. For example, 
the only reason I came to LA is I got, I've still got the fax somewhere. I, I got summoned to hang out with Seal for his, I think, fourth album. So I was in Benedict Canyon. This is way before, at that point, I thought film music was something for like old, uncool people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was hanging out with Bjork <laughs> yeah. and Seal and Trevor Horn. And I was making records and was too cool for school. And so I came over to work with Seal and that went on and on and on. I had a great time. And when that finished, I think it might've been 2001, something like that. Um, it was a bit of a hippie decision. I thought, well, since I've been working really hard, I'm going to go to the Far East for the hell of it and just chill in like Malaysia and Thailand for a bit. And then when I get back to LA, I'll make one or two choices. If I land, because I've been in LA for about a year and a half. If I land in LA and it feels like a foreign country, I'll get another plane and then go back to England, which is where I'm from. But if I land in LA and it feels like I've been away and now I'm back and it feels like home, I'll just like take it from there. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, this is way before film music. So I landed in LA and I just couldn't think of a reason to get on a plane to go to England, really. I'd, I'd shipped over quite a few things. So I got an apartment in Los Feliz and whatnot. This is still way before film music. And I started, you know, I was still working in the record industry doing a few things. And it was not long after that, Hans Zimmer heard um, an album I did called Transfiguration. Uh, again, all a bit sort of random, really. Uh, Bob Badamy is a legendary music editor oh, who's yeah, very, yeah. very tight with Hans. You can imagine the sheer amount of music that people try to send to Hans. It probably never, yeah. even, never even reaches his ears, you know. And uh, thanks to a, a very dear friend of mine called Elisa um, Badalamenti, she was friends with Bob said, you know, you, you should have a listen to this. It's pretty interesting what this English guy's done. So Bob heard it and went, actually, you know what? It is pretty interesting. And then he played it to Hans, because it was a weird combination of, I, I'd done a sort of remix of Henry Purcell's Dido and Aeneas aria, uh, When I'm Laid, which is actually a 17th century Baroque aria from an mm. opera. But I'd sort of produced it as if it were a Bjork album. It sounded a bit like something off Vespertine. Um, so it had like crunchy, weird electronic, but a string arrangement and a dead straight, but it's a really weird. So anyway, Hans had, I went, God, that's, that's a bit left field. <laughs> and Hans likes things that are disruptive, meaning this thing had a very classical intro with strings and then suddenly all hell let loose about 16 bars <laughs> later. And it's just right. every, everything you would not expect. It's got, I mean, you, you're either going to hate it or love it. It's so opinionated, this piece. So he just called me and went, did you, is it, what, where do you do this? Like, where are you? What are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm actually just in LA. So well, you should come, come and have a chat. And I thought, I think at that point, I had started to get a bit bored with, which sounds terrible, this, I've got the ultimate respect for well put together pop music. Anyone who's snobbish about pop music of any kind, rock music, pop music, electronica, dubstep, whatever it is, anyone who's snobby about any of those genres, you try excelling in them, you know? I, yeah, I've got a lot absolutely. of respect, yeah. Any kind of music can be done brilliantly or done in an amateur and unimaginative mm -hmm. fashion, you know? Anyway, I think because of my classical background and whatnot, I just started to get to the point where even some of the most interesting artists like Bjork and Seal at the time, who are a bit more exploratory with arrangement and texture and chords and everything, I think I was going to the point where I said, well, at the end of the day, it's always like three minutes, 45 seconds. And it's not like you can go on a mad adventure with the harmony and everything. And, you know, all of this sort of classical background, I was getting a little bit frustrated. So it was the most amazing timing because I went and hung out with Hans and had my eyes open because like some sort of, um, you know, idiot, 
I had this idea of film music was for like old, <laughs> maybe it's the sort of you get into when you're 60 kind of thing. You know, Hans right. is cool. Hans used to, you know, Hans used to hang out with Trevor Warren. They were like peas in a pod. You know, yeah. Hans is like the film, of, like my incredible luck in, in getting to hang out with a legendary record producer who was groundbreaking like Trevor Warren. Repeated right. itself all over again when I hung out with Hans, who's sort of the same role model to me, but on the, on the film music side, you know, and it's not like he's not cool. He used to make records, you know what I mean? He's oh, just yeah, as, yeah. He's just as comfortable messing around. In fact, I think I found out, I don't know if this is apocryphal, sadly, my father passed away quite a while ago. I think something along the lines of either my dad or my dad was part of something that was happening in the late 70s and they needed at like midnight in 1977 in London, a synth bar, and they rung around and there was this German kid with a prophet who would just show up at any time and like nail it. <laughs> and it was Hans. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that, you know, he, he, was, he was the cool kid with all the toys. Right, yeah. <laughs> he, he knew how to do, you know, um, see, you know, sequency stuff for pop records and whatnot. Anyway, so yeah, if 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 you were hoping for a strategically planned answer, where I knew I, I not only did I make the decision to stay in America on the flip of a coin at an airport, I had no idea to do film music because I was think, you know, I just like working in the record industry. Although, like I said, I was getting a bit musically hemmed in. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was just thanks to fortune and the recommendations of others that, and like I say, when I went to go and see Hans, it was like a light bulb going off. I was like, oh, instead of moaning to my agent in pop music, oh God, you know, it's all the same. Uh, the fact, if you've got a very eclectic background and you're just as interested in writing some music that's inspired by, I don't know, 15th century church music, the one place you can do that is film music. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? You might be working on a film that's to do with the the, Hugo, the massacre of the Huguenots in France in 16-something, and suddenly knowing how to do modal harmony is a tool you're going to need. Or you might be doing some movie set in the future, and it's sort of iRobot or Oblivion or something, and suddenly you need to not sound like your grandpa doing like legit electronica. Suddenly, instead of having all these paints and you're getting frustrated, you need, you know, you need all those paints because, well, you don't have to, you, you could specialize, you know, in film music, but it means that you, you are just as comfortable with something like Oblivion as you are, you know, some historical drama. And I, I don't know why it took me that, you know, it's just love. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, it just, life, life paves its own path and yeah. you just kind of walk where it paves. <laughs> exactly, I mean, it's luck and then you have to just work ridiculously. I mean, oh yeah. Know, yeah, uh, you didn't. You didn't just. You didn't just like somersault into this. <laughs> no, no, no. What, what happens is you get the breaks, and then the, the only thing. I mean, some people are unlucky enough not to get the breaks, and then people yeah. get the breaks, and it still doesn't happen because the thing is, you you have to get the breaks, and then it's about ninety. Having two percent is the breaks. The other ninety-eight percent is just really, really hard work. You know, it's for me anyway. Up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. So, kind of looking at the trajectory of your career. Um, and I, mean, I know that, you know, you did start kind of in, in that record world. So you did have a musical background coming into the film music stuff, but kind of looking back at your early days of additional music writing, and then of course your mm. first score, Monsters vs. Aliens, what would you rate like your confidence level as a composer at that point compared oh, to maybe now? Terrified. I mean, really? <laughs> Monsters vs. Aliens. I mean, 
I was confident that I, I know, you know, I mean, I was at St. Paul's Cathedral Choir School when I was about seven years old, but I mean, right. that doesn't mean it. that that's all very well and good in terms of like, oh, well, you're very knowledgeable about music. But in terms of how much experience have you had putting together, you know, an 85 minute score for a $200 million movie under the auspices of Jeffrey Katzenberg? Answer, zero. Uh, absolute zero. So, um, uh, uh, I think it's no exaggeration to say, I mean, maybe no, no one would have noticed in meetings and whatnot, but internally, I think it was one of the most challenging things. I think it sort of has to be. I feel like if, mm. if you're doing something for the first time and it doesn't have that feeling, then there's probably something wrong. Yeah, you're not scared. You yeah. always say fear I, I, yeah. is a good tell. Yeah. Yes, I mean, either unless you're just so supremely naturally talented that like, everything you do is perfect. Um, but oh, definitely, I, I would say more than working with. I remember when I first met Trevor Horn, I was I was pretty terrified, and he was very cool. Put me, and it, it wasn't even it wasn't like I had to write an entire score. That was just like meeting. I was only like twenty two <laughs> or something, but he yeah, was yeah. cool. He cool as a cucumber. But yeah, it's totally different because um, I would say the experience of Monsters versus Aliens, I don't think there was ever a problem that I didn't know how to write music. The issue right. was, are you going to be able to stand firm as the ship passes through the Cape of Good Hope or wherever? You know, it was much more to do with when you get 35 foot waves, will all the furniture fly off the boat or is it properly... <laughs> bolted on you know it, it was a really good lesson in um the pressure and the time and all the things that have to happen require a whole load of qualities actually aren't to do with writing music you it, it's quite possible to imagine a scenario in which someone is highly musically talented but just doesn't make it for those reasons of pressure and whatnot and Absolutely. someone else someone else who may not be as talented but fantastically organized and very psychologically resilient would perhaps be more likely to have, a, you know, you need quite a yeah. lot of different different um, qualities. So, oh yeah. Science, yeah, I would be like, if I said, oh yeah, Monsters versus Aliens, you know, I wrote these themes, they liked the themes, and I just plowed through the score and everything was hunky-dory, <laughs> would just be a blatant lie. But I tell you why I don't feel bad about that. I know we're always banging on about Predator with my hero, Alan Silvestri. When I finally got to talk to him about Predator, because I think it's got this innovative use of harmony that just doesn't show mm -hmm. up in, the history of film music. I mean, it's like a seminal deployment of harmony, but for the sort of heroic fallen soldier theme, the whole thing's octatonic. And I mean, me and John Powell are talking about this. We found like eight bars of Rimsky-Korsakov that adhere to the same <laughs> harmonic, you know, it was very original. So I call him up expecting some long-winded, uh, you know, explanation of his sort of grand idea. And he goes, Henry, to be honest with you, all I can remember about Predator was just floundering. I just felt like I wasn't like, I'm not even a film composer. Why have they asked me? I don't really know what I'm doing. I was like, if you listen to the score and then try and tally that with the self-confession of a guy going, I, to be honest, all I remember was just feeling a bit out of my depth. Um, which is <laughs> I, absolutely, I, yeah. it's not what comes through in the music. What you hear in the music is the consummate work of a, of a complete genius. Um, 
So it was uh, funny because I, I talked to him about that theme. Like I interviewed him and we talked and we broke the theme down. He was like, it was just about testosterone. It was just about, yeah, you know, yeah. Dun, 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 you know, but honestly, the first thing that came out of his mouth was the, was the memory of feeling a bit like he was floundering and it, mm. you know, he, did, he didn't feel like some supreme commander of his compositional. Yeah. Now, I don't know, he might have just been saying that to be self-facing, but I don't know, it's probably true. No, he's, a, yeah, he's, he's a very honest man. I would uh, take yeah, him at his word. <laughs> I think so. So, you know, I've learned that when uh, I remember doing a gig with Seal in uh, Mandalay Bay Hotel, and the first act was bells and whistles. It was Christine Aguilera, and it was just, you know, rockets and, you know, Ed, massive production. And then it was me, Seal, and his guitar, and it was really stripped down. It was really basic. Seal, totally honest, singing, playing the guitar, me playing the piano, just one other guitar player. And, uh, I don't know why I agreed to do it because I don't really do live. You know, I love doing composing. <laughs> and he, he, he kind of really sneakily forced me into it by going, hey, listen, I just got to go down to do this gig for Tiger Woods. It's no big deal. You know, you know how to play. We'll just jam. You'll figure it out. You know the chords for Kiss and Rose. And I was like, yeah, but can't you get like a proper pro session dude or someone who you've been on tour with so I can carry on on the album? And yeah. he was like, oh, no, I'll get someone else if you admit out loud that you're a complete coward. I was like, what? I said, what? <laughs> Obviously, you can play it. I said, well, yeah, of course I can. Well, then what's the problem? Come on, then, let's do it. I was like, oh, boy. So by the time I got to this gig, I was absolutely petrified. I was live on TV. We got to the green room. Sia was busy being all charming and wandering around having a drink and, you know, totally relaxed. I was in the green room about to have some sort of heart attack. And Joe Pesci was in there. And he was pacing around going, ah, uh, oh, God damn it, you know, I, I, I don't know why I agree to do that. I get so, I get so damn nervous at these things. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, I mean, Joe Pesci is an absolute legend and he's pacing around. He was comparing, you know, he was doing some of the, the, the blurb, you know, um, right. to, the, to the crowd and everything. And once I saw that he was pacing around, regretting that, you know, getting all nervous and go, oh, I don't know why I say yes. It's like Joe Pesci, everyone, I mean, you can't mess with Joe Pesci. He's like a legend. Right. <laughs> but it's funny because you think about it, Joe Pesci doesn't really do interviews. He's kind of pretty shy. I think he's yeah, a shy yeah. dude. Yeah. He, well, he did and, a great uh, job. I just remember, I mean, I can't remember if he verbally articulated, I might have exaggerated that, but I just remember seeing that, that you know, uh, while Sia was supremely confident, I wasn't the only one thinking, <laughs> I'm a bit nervous, I'm sort of relaxed about it. So, um, yeah, I think you need a bit of, I mean, it was a bit debilitating how uh, nervous I was on Monsters vs. Aliens, which is natural because it's the first yeah, thing. Absolutely. I think you, 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 but you want a bit of that. I don't think you ever want to get so complacent that you're just like, oh, it's just another movie, you know. You right. Know. I think if that happens, it'll show. I think it mean, if that happens, it means you don't care, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've if you're nervous, that. you care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It just mustn't be debilitating. That's all. I'm sure if you spoke to even top performers of every kind, whether it's actors, classical pianists, or you know anyone in a band, I think if if you talk to them just before going on stage, if they're just like, yeah, what, you know, I'm fine. I don't have any change in my temperament. You know. Oh yeah. No, they're probably stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're probably not about to give a great performance. Well, with Mons, I, I was, you know, documenting his, his behind the scenes for tour, this tour, and yeah, 
he gets extremely nervous before he walks onto that stage every night, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, and then he's great, you know? I remember he's going, great, he's having right. a blast, yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, I mean, it, it looks like he, you know, I remember seeing him at Coachella and he was just interacting with the crowd, having, you know, he's having a ball. But same thing, I bet you, you know, the rehearsal was really tight and then there's like a bit yeah. of pressure and then like half an hour before, <laughs> you know, imagine it's what like, the uh... yeah, right, right. I bet you, if you're walking out to the final of the Champions League, even if you're Lionel Messi, you know, you probably got butterflies half an hour before the whistle, whistle goes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it goes away once the once the kickoff starts. You know, you're in. <laughs> right. um, so you know, now that you've kind of you've established this career and you're kind of a veteran of the industry. Uh, would you look back, at, maybe look back at Monsters versus Aliens, would you have done anything different back then that you would have done now? Knowing everything that you've known, maybe how your sound has developed, your approach has developed, or would you be like, that was me, that's, I'm, I'm proud of that, and that's who I was. No, I'm, de I'm definitely proud of it. I think like my mother always uh, says, you can only do what you think is right at, at the time. Right. Um, I know, I think I am pretty proud of it, actually. I mean, I work really hard on it. Usually, it probably suffers from when you get your first opportunity to show what you can do. You mm -hmm. ram-pack yeah. everything with everything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if it suffers from any... But fortunately, thank God, luckily for me, it was a sort of... It was a sort of movie that required an almost melodramatic, overblown score half the time. Mm -hmm. So I kind of yeah. got away... I kind of got away with it, but um, you know, what tends to happen is when you look back on stuff that you do earlier, it's the, the level of, uh, your, your level of poise gets better as you get older. And you're more likely to throw right. the kid, more likely to throw the kitchen sink at something, you know, earlier in, in, a, in a bid to uh, demonstrate to everyone that you can do you know, that you have every virtuoso chop that you, you're dying for everyone to hear, you know. Right. <laughs> but it, with Monsters vs. Aliens, part of that was sort of needed for the movie. So, uh, uh, you know, thankfully it wasn't a sort of highly understated drama with Helen Mirren, William Hurt and Sigourney Weaver. Right. <laughs> where someone desperate to show off all their, all their chops would have, you know, uh, come... come in direct conflict with the, with the filmmaker. So I got lucky Absolutely. in that respect. Absolutely. Um, so last time we talked, uh, it was a while ago, we, we, we talked with uh, about Ralph Breaks Internet and uh, The Predator. So you've done a couple pro projects since then. I kind of want to maybe just touch on them briefly before we focus on the Comey role. But um, uh, the last time we talked, you were just, I think, working on Detective Pikachu. Oh, yeah. And, and I love the film. It turned out so great. And I remember you were super excited because I think you and Rob were talking about like, oh, it's, you know, talking about maybe Who Framed Roger Rabbit as an inspiration. Maybe yeah, kind of, yeah. So did you kind of get your itch about, you know, scratch your itch for live action, animation, film noir? Did you get to? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm lucky with Rob because he's, Rob, uh, he's a good director. He's very open-minded. He's really into music. I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he rung me and said, hey, dude, I got this, like, broken 808 drum machine. Can, can I come around? I mean, like, jam. And, you know, he, <laughs> he literally was, well, the... I think a track that sort of sums up some of the fun I had in um, on the Pikachu movie, Detective Pikachu, was that track, uh, what's it called, Rhyme City, mm -hmm. um, which has this sort of, you know, I was very strict in not using any plugins. It's all original Roland D550, MKS50, I can't remember what other said, Juno 106. I mean, it took ages, because it was like making a record in the late 80s, 90s. Yeah. 
but it got a certain sound. If people want to sort of, if they can't be bothered to listen to 60 minutes of music and I don't blame them, check out Rhyme City, which, <laughs> uh, which is a sort of blend of orchestra and some of these slightly nostalgic inducing synths in, in, in a, used in kind of patterns that are slightly reminiscent of um, uh, like Mike Oldfield or like they're, they're quite patterny. It, it, it triggers a certain memory of synth writing that I don't know, I, I, it just, it was an interesting combination of elements that was synth and orchestra that had this sort of, it was sort of futuristic, but had a weird nostalgia to it. Yeah, I it was great. My finger on it. No, I love the way you approached it, and it was the, the movie was super entertaining and just well made, and performances were great, the effects were great, it was everything tied together fantastically. <laughs> yeah, and, and I went to the I went to Japan for the uh, for the premiere. Oh, nice! Fascinating cultural experience that made me realize how uh, it's a very formal. You know, when you go if you go to a premiere in America, you know it's great. There are usually kids everywhere who want all the autographs of the stars. Yeah. There's a great sort of excited, but essentially casual atmosphere. People clap mm -hmm. when certain names come up of their colleagues that they know and all this kind of thing. So I went to the premiere in Japan and when it finished, there was an absolute stony silence. And I thought, oh dear, perhaps they just, do, were there some cult cultural appropriation errors? Are, we, are they offended? Do they not? And then after a period, there was a sort of quite formal, Clapper's like, oh no, it's just cultural. It's sitting down at a premiere to watch a movie is much more like a sort of classical concert. It's not, mm. you know, it's not a casual thing. And it's obviously very important, you know, the culturally it's a, it's a Japanese, um, uh, it, it comes from Japanese culture. Yeah, it's, and Rob had, is a Japanese export. Oh my God, yeah. And, and, uh, and Rob had all manner of meetings. Uh, it, it wasn't just a case of, meeting the, the aesthetic requirements of Legendary and Warners and whatnot. There were all manner of mm. um, uh, discussions with, you know, with the, whoever owns the actual copyright, you know, to make yeah, sure the Pokemon that, company. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. To make sure that things are um, culturally in tune with the original and all the rest of it. He, he had an awful lot of that kind of thing. But yeah, at first I thought, oh my God, they don't like it. <laughs> but it wasn't true at all. And it was the same in the interview. I remember various people were interviewed, you know, on the red carpet and everything. And it looked a bit like the sort of interview where you might be asking the vice president something. It was all quite serious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah I remember because uh, my wife and I went to Japan earlier this year before the pandemic. Um, it was right before the pandemic hit, so we were able to go. And we got to the Pokemon store, and it was just yeah. like this massive, beautiful thing. We're just like, it was like Disneyland, you know? It's yeah, like yeah. the way it's like cherished there. And I grew up, you know, buying the cards and collecting the cards. So it was, it was a fun, it was a fun experience. Yeah. It's, a, it's a whole world. Absolutely. So um, uh, you also did, uh, oh, I just hit my microphone there. But uh, so you did two films that were tied together by uh, Matthew Michael Carnahan. Uh, Mazel, which uh, he wrote and directed, and 21 Bridges, which he co-wrote. Mm. Uh, well, 21 Bridges, of course, came out last year. Uh, Mazel's actually, I think, coming November 26th yeah. on Netflix. And now this film, you know, it was told fully through the point of view of uh, Iraqi kind of, I think it's a Nineveh SWAT team mm. story. What was it like putting yourself in that POV of the story, and what did the score need to accomplish with this film? 
Yeah, that's interesting. God, God, I actually did that a while ago because it took a I while to, to find it's a home. So, yeah, that feels like uh, ancient history that we have to dig in. I tell you what, I do remember is the sheer um, intellectual acumen of Matthew, mm. um, who now he he did, that that was entirely written by Matthew and directed. Yes. Where, where Twenty One yes. Bridges was directed uh, by someone else, but Matthew right. both wrote and directed Mosul. And he is, you know, the all, he's like the epitome of the smart American, highly educated, very funny. I mean, it's not like he's pompous or anything. Yeah. Super, super educated, spends a lot of time in Washington, wouldn't be out of place in a political think tank, you know, knocking mm -hmm. out papers on, you know, the future of the, you know, the 21st century economy and how it's gonna work. I mean, the guy is seriously bright and is an expert on foreign affairs and doesn't have a sort of jingoistic or nationalistic or um, simplified understanding of foreign affairs. He has a very nuanced. So that's why Mosul's really interesting because rather than, I mean, the cliche would be like, hey, let's do a movie in, uh, about events in Iraq. And then the next thought would ordinarily be commercially, well, I don't think we can make a foreign language movie with four unknown people all speaking in the uh, uh, indigenous languages of Iraq. I think we're gonna have to have like a Matt Damon. Right. <laughs> Maybe the story has to be, we have like an American operative and he's hanging out and say, well, no, why, why do we have to do that? Why can't we just, why, it doesn't need any Americans in it. Why can't we just have uh, a story set in the chaos of post 2003 invaded Iraq? And, and it just, and it's a pretty brave decision because it's not gonna involve actors that you've seen before or heard of right and it's going to be a foreign language film but it, it's absolutely brilliant i mean i would i would recommend it to anyone as a it's not it's got in the same way that paul greengrass has a scrupulously journalistic approach to filmmaking that doesn't um, it's ambiguous in a good way and yeah, doesn't fall absolutely. easy so captain phillips for example if, if you watch captain phillips go oh this is going to be great because we're going to see like the Americans kicking the crap out of these like baddie Somalian pirates. That's so not what that movie's about. No. By, the time you, by the time you finish watching Captain Phillips, if you had any lazy, um, uh, lazy, simplified ideas of what a pirate is, you will soon have learned that, I mean, even though obviously the events that unfold are extremely hazardous and it's extremely unfortunate that you know, yeah. an, an American commercial ship got boarded, the, the, the point is, these are four 23-year-old kids who, have, who live in a country that you couldn't even realistically call a country. Every institution of their country is completely screwed. And right. they, can, they can either join a gang, uh, get some money. And by the way, the money they get, from they then have to hand over feudally to their sort of overlords. Yeah. And, and it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do. So I'm not justifying it. I'm saying by the time you've watched the Paul Greengrass version of these events you get the you get both sides it's a yeah, both sides very it's, neutral approach yeah, to exactly. it exactly so yeah. you end up with this feeling of thank god captain phillips is okay and thank god they got rescued but you have an overall feeling of like what a mess and what a shame the world is how mm -hmm. it is such that young kids in somalia end up you know risking their own lives and seeing getting into yeah. this terrible trouble and and matthew's is similar to that in that if you had any simplified notions about what, what's been going on in Iraq since the fall of Saddam Hussein. You watch this and you're going to end up going, huh, that was interesting. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, 
and, and you find, and, but nor is it a polemic. You watch it, it's not trying to make some heavy handed, but nor is it anti, it's not like it's anti-American. Right. It's not anti, it's not anti or pro anything. It's a story where you get to follow the activities of an Iraqi SWAT team and what they're up against and what the reality of life in Mosul is like. And it's a real eye opener. Absolutely, yeah. And I know, yeah, you mentioned that you finished it a while ago because I think if you check IMDb, it was dated a year or two ago. And yeah, but it, but it's it's finally coming out on Netflix. I think I saw the trailer. It's in November twenty sixth, so it's definitely well, worth checking out. It is worth checking out. And music. The other comparison I'd make with um, uh, working with Paul Greengrass is because of that kind of movie, the very last thing you want is epic narrative thematic. Yes material, I mean, it is so realistic. I mean, they even got drone footage of Mosul at times when it was pretty hazardous. Wow. To be there. I mean, it was such a legit film. They even had trouble with, you know, some of the casting, some of the people uh, were, were being questioned in terms of like, this person might not be a per persona grata in terms, you know, just uh -huh. security background. I mean, it was all fine. It wasn't like they were yeah. working with anyone who was hazardous, right. but you don't have to do a security background check on Matt Damon with regard to whether he has any connections with ISIS, okay? Right, yeah, um, absolutely. Anyway, um, the point is, uh, uh, because of Greengrass's um, documentary-ish influence style, you know, the man mm -hmm. who's a journalist, he doesn't like, uh, and nor should he, because the kind of filmmaking it has music that has a strong narrative opinion, it has to be mustn't do anything to upset that moral ambiguity that he's really good at in his films. And it was the same thing with Matthew. It's a very textual, you know, we became the masters of exploring texture. And, mm. and you know, when you need to do the storytelling in the music, it's how to do it in such a way that it's, if it were a painting, it would be much more like a Mondrian or something geometric. It can't have landscape and trees and, Right. Because as soon as it feels either heroic or as soon as something feels, it's how to do tension and how to do relief without using any sort of emotionally obvious tropes that start tilting yeah. the audience. And, and Matthew was very, I would say he was similar to Greengrass in the desire for music never to intrude and start having simplistic narrative opinions mm. that would upset this very... Um, you know, ambiguous and intelligent filmmaking that he's made. And I actually really like, it's the sort of thing where, you know, if you've got a background, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do that for your whole career because yeah. you're in, it's all textual, but, you know, nor do you want to always be having orchestral bells and whistles flying all over the place with massive themes. So it was a real privilege. I would say Captain Phillips and Mosa both in that category of highly realistic, highly unmelodramatic, un you know, the opposite of lyrically yeah. invasive. And, and it's to do with how to control texture. Uh, right. So it's still, if you pull the music out, you're definitely missing something. But when you put it in, it's got this layer of abstraction that allows the audience to have their own feelings about things and doesn't box them in so they have to feel a certain way. Yeah, John, uh, John Powell said the same thing about working with Paul on, on United 93. And, yeah, uh, you know, that's another great example. Yeah, yes. that's a great example. And he said it was very in Green Zone too. talk about Matt Damon, but in Green Zone. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, well, I'm not knocking, kind of, by the way. I'm, not knocking. I, <laughs> no. I said Matt Damon, 
<laughs> yeah, it sounds like I'm knocking Green Zone. I, no, know. Green Zone's actually a really great film. Yeah, and it's I, very intense and well-made. So, <laughs> what a great performance by Matt Damon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's um, just, but it's that. But John explained how it was very difficult to kind of you know make a score work in that sense and not comment on that and but also fulfill what a score needs to do. It's a it's a really interesting challenge I think for a composer. It is. Yeah. It, is. it would. I, I mean, it would. I mean, Paul in particular, I, I reached levels of sort of deconstruction I didn't even know were possible. They imagine <laughs> I said to you, please paint a painting, but don't make it too narrative, make it abstract. And so you paint something, uh, and let's say it's sort of set in a desert, but it doesn't have any human people. But you can sort of see what things that look like hills. And I, I bust you and go, no, 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 that looks, I feel like I'm in a desert landscape. So then you do version two, and now there's no desert landscape. It's just made out of lines, and then there are various shapes and whatnot. And I go, right. okay. And you're thinking, dude, it's so stripped down. I, I, I don't think he's going to go for it. And I go, and then I, I look at your painting and go, you know what? It's way too busy. And he's like, you are kidding me. <laughs> and I go, okay, so lose the background and just keep, keep some. And it eventually gets down to like one square in the bottom left-hand corner, half a triangle in the top right-hand corner, and like a squiggle in the middle. And you're thinking, mm, really? Perfect. And then they go, yeah, we're, no, we're nearly there. Get rid of the, get rid of the squiggle. <laughs> Leave a huge hole in the middle and just put the two, you know. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, while, Ma while Ma Mazel is uh, based on a true story, you also did Extraction, which was produced and written by your friends, uh, the Rousseau the brothers, Russo, yeah. uh, but directed by longtime stunt performer and coordinator Sam Hargrave. And we've seen the what that does. You know, we've seen the success of hiring a stunt coordinator uh, uh, like that. Uh, with the John Wick series, because it turned out to be fantastically, they know how to shoot action. So I'm curious for Extraction, did you notice a different way of the way they were shooting and editing that Sam brought to the action that maybe didn't have, you didn't see on other kind of action projects? Did it, did well, it feel yes, more? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, the guy's a ninja. He, he's yeah. got a stuff. But funny enough, I had seen it because he, he, was, he did some work on um, uh, Winter Soldier. Right, he was a coordinator, yeah. Exactly. Now, if you look at some of that action on Winter Soldier, it's so, uh, it's sort of like a violent, acrobatic, but kind of balletic and beautiful mm -hmm. all at the same time. It was sort of a, um, you know, genre changing, meaning once that happened, if you didn't really have fresh action shots, you were looking stale. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, there was something about the way that was put together that left, that moved everything on. Uh, and that's just, he, he has, it's, it's the weirdest thing because, you know, it's not like I approve of violence, but the way right. he, there's, because it's not real, there is an artistic side to it. It's like a very weird combination of, of toughness, but there is something balletic. In, in his... It's any kind of fight choreography. I mean, especially when you look at uh, martial arts and especially in the kind of Asia, in Asia, Asian countries of Kung Fu and Karate mm. and look at, you know, Jackie Chan films and how those are, I always go back to old Jackie Chan films because it's a ballet, it's a dance and they take it so seriously yeah. in, in terms of the execution. Yeah, it's, but in, I know Jackie Chan lived, has a more levity to his films, a little bit more comical. Right, but of course. Yeah, yeah so he definitely wants to make it feel story. light. Yeah, but this yeah. one's a bit darker, yeah, so... And if you want someone highly emotionally troubled, stroke emotionally stunted and can't really talk about all his problems whilst being incredibly tough and sort of semi-nihilistic about not caring whether he lives or dies, hello, Mr. Hemsworth, step up. <laughs> you know, he, he completely delivers the, 
pain, on the on the one hand, he delivers all the physical requirements of the extremely mm. demanding physical role, but managed to convey when not a lot of it's revealed all the time in the story, the the um, troubled, you know, that scene where he sinks down to the bottom when uh, when he's hanging out with his mates and then just jumps in the water. Although it's sort of like a breathing chick and everything, you do get the hint of a man who, should he stay down there and not bother coming back up and drown, you know, <laughs> right. whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's a different sort of nihilism to the nihilism of, of the Joker in Nolan's Batman, who's obviously yes. manic and crazy. But he, before, as an audience, you know the background story about his son. He carries with him uh, a sort of reckless abandon. Whilst being, it's a really weird combination of being incredibly disciplined as a fighter, but having an underlying psychic and spiritual recklessness to do with basically not caring about mm -hmm. himself or whether he lives or dies and feeling like he doesn't really deserve um, life itself. Right, right. It's an odd combination. And he managed to sort of convey that without uh, using many words. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and, and, which is the and, best way to do it. <laughs> exactly. So the music was, you know, a combination of these odd recall moments of emotional tenderness or emotional pain and then large stretches of taut, uh, gnarly, unthematic, visceral, um, textural uh, action music. And, and uh, you know, with the slight, towards the end, that slight combination of it being both an action sequence, but also, uh, uh, you know, a falling hero who doesn't really care about his own life kind of collide. Yeah, yeah, uh, by absolutely. The but it's another movie where, you know, if you, you know, unlike Jumanji, you start getting flowery with thematic material. And the first thing you'll do is absolutely ruin Chris Hemsworth's <laughs> um, performance. Well, speaking of Jumanji, you, you got to come back to the sequel, which was another amazing delay. I think the first one surprised everybody with how amazingly yeah. heartfelt it was and the characters and everything. And, uh, and you got to come back to that world. And I know we've covered kind of how you approach sequels, but I'm sure it must have been fun to just go in there and just have a blast with that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's at the other end of the spectrum. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the great advantage, but you know what's similar is the advantage of a director who's a writer, like Matthew on Mosul, mm -hmm. and um, Jake Kasdan, who comes from, you know, sort of Hollywood lineage. I mean, his father- Lawrence Kasdan. Didn't he write Empire Strikes Back? I think he wrote yes. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not to say you don't get, we just mentioned a director who completely nailed a movie coming from uh, stunt choreography, as it were. Uh, so there's a million one ways to come at um, yeah. being a director. But the, the advantage of a writer is any time in the filmmaking, there's a crossroads or a discussion or a debate or the potential for confusion or, you know, the, the fumbling around to find the right direction. Absolutely. He has a writer's perspective. So it's like, okay, let's go back to first principles. The idea, the whole idea, when I wrote this, the whole idea of this, the whole function of the scene was blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, so going all the way back to first principles, if that's the idea of the scene, then perhaps the musical approach should be X, you know, because that will support most, you know, what this original idea. Now, it's not always an advantage because sometimes, not in the case of Jake, but sometimes a writer could have this idea in his head, but it never got nailed in execution. 
So they're going on about something that's in the script and in their head, but absolutely not in the cut, in the editing room, not even on the cutting room floor. <laughs> and you have to gently explain to them, well, that's a fantastic idea, but it's absolutely not represented in the film. And I, can't, I can't write a piece of music supporting a scene that you failed to shoot or execute. <laughs> you know, um, that obviously wasn't a problem with Jake. But yeah, he, he had um, the fact that he's a writer and he's great with all the actors and he's great with music. He, and, and also celebrates the very thing I was saying won't work in Mosul and you know, Paul Greenberg, Captain Phillips. Jumanji will not work the other way around. If you don't go, if you don't have an opinion and you're not narratively and thematically grand, yeah. you, you failed. You need you know, an adventure theme, you need a Jumanji theme, you need like the sort of the desert remix of it for the second one. The attack of the Mandrills is a cue I spent about three weeks on. You know, it's you need all of your thematic DNA to elevate what is a fantasy action adventure tale that couldn't be more different in filmmaking to the sorts of things we're talking about. So you know, oh, the reverse sure. the reverse rules apply if you're trying to get through some attack of the Mandrill cue by pulsing your way through with a bit of a drone and a bit. Forget it. It's got to be full bells and whistles virtuoso orchestration as far as you can go and as much uh, storytelling wedded to the scene and you know themes that yeah. support the aspirations of the characters and everything it's it's the complete reverse <laughs> of, of the super psychologically credible realistic type filmmaking so you know i'm pretty lucky that you get to do but you just got to remember which hat to have on <laughs> yeah you don't want to actually wear the wrong hat yeah because <laughs> then you will be fired <laughs> oh Definitely, yeah. Well, what sometimes happens is you have a hangover from a previous project. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Create a if hangover, you've been working sure. on a Jumanji or an animated film, the first couple of things you do, perhaps on something that's completely modern <laughs> and abstracted or a bit too frilly, and conversely, if you've, been, if you've been working on something very deconstructed, your first couple of things on something uh, for an animated film, you know, need, need to go up a few gears in... Right. <laughs> Uh, speed of harmony and ideas and whatnot you know there's usually there's usually a sort of weak it's a bit like jet lag you get a jet lag hangover from the previous yeah um, absolutely whatever the set because usually by the time you get to the end of a movie you're so in the swing you finally you know between you and the filmmakers you you found the tram lines and the trains rolling and there's there's a set of aesthetic codes that go with the movie and you've got your themes and you figured out the the, the tricks for the orchestration and what the what the sounds are, what the, you know, the whole, the whole shebang has found its feet. And no sooner have you done that, it's over. <laughs> so as soon as you get to the next thing, you've got a bit of a jet lag hangover, whatever that set of things were, you know. Right. <laughs> and now no longer needed, need to go straight in the bin and you've got to start all over again with a whole new approach. Absolutely. Um, so I did want to bring up uh, Alex Belcher because uh, he's been your oh, co-composer yeah, on yeah. scores like I. Well, he was on, on most. We should have mentioned on and Mosul. Mosul. Yeah, and extraction. And extraction. Oh, no, not, so. so I beg your pardon. Not on Mosul. On extraction. No, on extraction. Twenty one bridges. I O. Um, Twenty one bridges. I'm getting all my movies mixed up. So when you have, I mean, Alex has been with you for some time. So when you have a composer, a young composer who works with you, like Alex, and he's demonstrated he's ready to kind of take on the responsibilities mm. and pressure that come with, you know, working on a film like that. Uh, uh, is it? Do you see it more like working with a colleague with Alex, or do you see it as, oh, he, you know, you see yourself more as a mentor to him? You're trying to bring him up. Like when it comes to that, 
dynamic does it change when it comes to co-composing a score with uh, somebody who's kind of worked under you for some years well there's a tiny bit of the mentor thing but but to be honest it's more that's really historical if you uh, in the case of uh, uh, 21 bridges and extraction if you you shouldn't enter into a, a, a co-write situation unless you have creative confidence and respect so by the, yeah. yeah exactly yeah. but so by the time it gets to that level it's not i mean the fact that uh, he's worked with me before not in that capacity is sort of ancient history you know it, yeah. because um otherwise there's no point in having if if any time there's like a creative conundrum to solve if you don't have the feeling that you you, you can discuss it with your co-composer on even terms about, hey, what should we do here? And it feels like, oh, I've got to figure this out. And then once I've figured it out, you know, this other person can help in the execution. Then it's not real. And that absolutely isn't the case. The reason I had the confidence to invite someone with his great talent and, and, and like, what would be the word? Authenticity. He's yeah, sure. A, he's, he's got a great um, streak of artistic authenticity which sounds like an odd thing to say it's like i mean well surely anyone would but that's not quite true it's possible to be very adept and very musically talented very flexible but not necessarily have a sort of stubborn streak of artistic mm. authenticity such as you might find like in a singer songwriter you know what i mean because you right. have to be because you have to be so much more flexible mm -hmm. in film music you know, you're not going to get uh, a, sing a really successful singer-songwriter is not usually going to be able to swing from, uh, you know, some highly techie thing to some, you know, 16th century thing. It's just, that's just not how it works. You know, they've got songs that they think are socially relevant or connect with people. And it, and, and, and Alex has a little bit in a good way. You don't, you don't want too much of that. Otherwise, you would restrict what you can work, work on. Right, right. But... Um, you know, because he's got a background uh, in guitars and, you know, it's not like he only knows about uh, symphonic music. And some of that, um, I, I wouldn't want to say Dylan, because it's not like he's a huge Dylan fan, but there, there, there's, a, there's an aspect of the authentic American singer-songwriter artist almost <laughs> that's part of his DNA, except he's way more flexible because he's worked right. in for music, but that it, it's it's actually a great it's a great quality because it, it it and that's why it was really great to collaborate with him. So that when yeah. not you know when it comes to ideas and how to approach something, it you know it's got it's got a whiff of Radiohead about it. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah, you know, I'm, I'm being really inarticulate and fumbling for the words, but it, it it's it would be very different to supposing you were collaborating with someone who'd been an orchestrator all their life. Yes. Yeah. So it's oh well, we could do this and we could put it on this. It's like, well, no, no, no. It's not really about what we could put it on. It's more like an overall artistic conversation about what would the musical kernel and mm. egg of something be, not going straight for the box of bells and whistles and all the, for want of a better word, skills and craft, you know, the crafting elements. Yes. More, yeah. more the, more what would happen if you said to, um, you know, uh, uh, more like a singer-songwriter artist. Yeah, I'm fumbling for words. But anyway, it's, uh, I've always liked that about, um, I've always liked that about Alex. And, 
And as long as that's, which it is in his case, is combined with all the flexible things you need in film music, you know, one minute you might have to be orchestra. Because he's great, he, he's actually a great guitarist. Yes, um, yes, yeah. Yeah, which I'm sure you know. Oh yeah, he's you know. fabulous, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's a similar thing. You know, his guitar playing's a bit like that. What's interesting about Alex is he's decidedly unimpressed by virtuoso fiddly, well not fiddly, <laughs> but guitar playing whose main purpose is to demonstrate like speed of playing. Right. If you listen to the guitar sounds he gets, it's that saying, it's very, you know, he works on his sounds, meaning, um, you know, people who have not been in bands underestimate the importance of like the credibility of the basic sounds that are being made. Mm -hmm. So that something can be played on guitars is super simple. The actual riff is really simple. The issue is, do you sound like an annoying student <laughs> or like a film music wannabe? Or have you got like a, a seriously credible guitar sound? You go, damn, those guitars sound. You know, like imagine listening to a Black Keys album where the guitar sounds are all like crappy. Right. <laughs> There's no point listening. Right. You know, or Alabama, what do they call Alabama shakes. I mean, that's the, the, the sonics of what they're doing are seriously grown up. You know what I mean? They're thoughtful. Yeah. It's, if you're a guitarist, you live and die on the credibility of your sound, unless you're one of those virtuoso people that got kind of no interest in listening to. <laughs> so it's a similar thing, you know, you know maybe that actually it, it can account for, if you're a guitar, you know, if you have a background in guitar, then even if you're just doing some basic chords, the, the, the whole discipline of finding your sound and getting a credible sound is, is not to do with, uh, uh, you know, anything virtuoso. It's to, I, I'm really, I'm being hopelessly unarticulate. But you know what I'm saying? It's oh, to I, do, I absolutely you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it has, yeah, the, yeah. there's something about that which has its own artistic discipline of, of, of getting your own sound. And it may, you know, maybe that the chords you're playing could be quite straightforward, or it could be that the, things are doing quite simple. It's like literally a piece that sounds great and it's made out of three tracks, you know, a guitar, yeah, then yeah. a sort of ambient thing over the top. But it's like how you got those sounds and what you're doing with it is the difference between, you know, Radiohead versus just something that you are thinking is generic and appalling, you know? Right, absolutely. <laughs> so I think that's had a, a really good influence on the way, it's like a lens that he sees the world through. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to also give a shout out to another great composer you work with is Anthony Willis. And he's, a, I think, a fantastic young talent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, no, yeah. He's, he's great. No, totally different background. Not, you know, it's interesting having to, yeah, it, it just shows that just all the, the great thing about film music is all different angles. It's the same as directors, you know, directors come from being yeah, picture, yeah. picture editors. They come from being writers. They come from Stunt being, coordinators. Oh, God, yeah, exactly. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. The common thread is imagination. Um, you know, people sometimes ask me, you know, what makes a film composer? As, as if, as long as you've got a, a box of whistles, you know, bells and whistles, and you know, it is good to be able to be flexible and everything. But as we were just pointing out with um, talking about Alex, ultimately, I think the people who stick out a bit, it's actually something a bit more underneath that, that, that underneath there's a kernel of imagination that ends yes. up being particular to them. So you could imagine a situation where someone who has fewer flexibilities, but some underlying opinion that keeps seeping out and expressing itself 
in the long run might be better off than someone who, a bit like a hairdresser, it's just like, well, how, how do you want me to cut it? I don't really have an opinion of my own. But they, they, they've got a million right. and one ways they can do things. You know, I mean, you never know. There are no hard and fast rules. But having, yeah, an, yeah. Ha- having an underlying opinion, uh, which obviously always has to be collaborative and in association with, it's no good just having an opinion and ignoring the director <laughs> and the producer. But, you know, the number one thing is a sort of artistic impetus that has a sort of authenticity to it. And then you can work on, you know, if you want to be really flexible, you know, it'd be great to be able to do a bit of this and a bit of that and know something about orchestration and electronics and whatnot. But it's not necessary. I mean, we can both think of composers who are highly regarded and do brilliant things, who are not super flexible. They've got a thing, you know, it's, you know, not that narrow, but there's a bunch of things that we know that they could do, but there's also a bunch of things you would never ask them with, you know. I can oh, think of composers who've done absolutely brilliant scores, you'd never ask them to do a Harry Potter score. Right, not, not exactly. Things, you know what I mean, with sort of, and you could think of people who are orchestrally incredibly adept, who would perhaps not be the right candidate for someone else. So it's not a criminal offense that you don't do. No, everything. everyone, yeah, it's, it's, it's the beauty of, of individuality and, and, exactly. and the well, beauty that, of, of, of passion and different interests, yeah. Exactly, which if anything underlines my point, the really, the most legitimate factor is that underlying artistic um, authenticity, and then you'll find a home for it, hopefully. Some, I mean, there are so many things being made between the old studio themselves and you know the new world of Netflix and all the rest of it, the sheer amount of things being made yeah. uh, that go from like ninth century China to 23rd century, you know, the future. there's a voice for for so many people's talents and opinions so you know it's all good absolutely so uh recently of course you let's talk about the the comey rule uh now i think we i originally reached out i think before the election and you were busy um which is i think better for us because now the election is over we can put that behind us Joe yeah, Biden. Yeah. Joe Biden is, you know, president-elect. Um, well, but p- pending some legal. I, I suppose if we pending were to, Trump being, if we were to be completely, <laughs> if we were to be constitutionally as neutral as humanly possible, we would say that the vast majority of people have uh, accepted the result, but that technically and legally there are some outstanding issues which will play themselves out. Uh, yes. <laughs> with the high likelihood of no change in the overall outcome, but we can't yet legally say that until right. they've right. worked their way through the system. <laughs> so, I'll get brownie uh, points for being... <laughs> you know, so yeah, you, you've now entered into our messy politics <laughs> with uh, this film, um, but you, um, you got to be part of kind of the first real dramatization of the Trump White House. And so how did you get involved with this miniseries because I noticed, you know, the talented Billy Ray wrote and directed and he was yeah. like, the writer for Captain Phillips. I don't know if there's exactly. a connection, yeah. there. There's a connection I, there, but um, uh, how, how did you get involved with this project? Um, let's see. I think Billy just called me. Uh, I think I got lucky because I, I was all lined up to go, I just can't fit it in and something, with, I really wanted to do it. Here's that, mm-hmm. that, starting with first principles, I read the script and, you know, Billy, not a million miles from Matthew in, you know, incredibly articulate, incisive, creative. What's, I mean, the genius of Billy is that the proposition is let's make something that's two one hour episodes that is basically men and women talking in rooms. 
<laughs> that's the drama, all right? Right, right. I, now, obviously, <clears throat> it's it's such a fantastically interesting thing, and the president is such an unusual and um, charismatic, disruptive figure that you know I make it sound like it. But but the the basic proposition is that that something very engaging and dramatic is going to unfold that is basically shot in rooms with people talking. That's it. Right, right. And, and so when you start, when you think, look at it through that lens, it makes you realize that the writing, and also, hang on, let's, let's also factor in that the discussions are not simplistic. Um, no, I, that sounds pejorative, but, you know, if you have a sort of movie, if, if a movie was you know, something heroic or a superhero movie or something, you're not going to have incredibly technical bureaucratic <laughs> discussions about the attorney general and the constitutional niceties of what should or shouldn't be happening. It's very technical. He didn't pull his punches. All the scenes are legit and, you know, all of the positions within the US government. I mean, if you're not um, an expert in politics, he, they, a brilliant job was done of being able to follow the serious professional dilemmas that Comey ended up um, being pushed into without having to go, look, this, it, it, you could imagine a producer saying, go, listen, there's no way we can make something like this with everything being politically realistic. There's going to be endless detailed and technical conversations about the role of the Attorney General, the role of the Director of the FBI, and, you know, what is and what isn't supposed to happen. And, you know, I just don't think we can make something with, you know, this is going to be boring. No one's going to want to watch it. And right. none, of the, none of the above is true. He managed to combine the total credibility of not um, Hollywoodizing, to use a slightly unfair and pejorative term, or let's, all use, you know, let's use a different term. Instead of going, okay, let's strip out all the realism to dumb it down so we can package it so that people who don't have an expertise in all the niceties right. of the American Constitution, that's not what he did. And yet, if you follow it, and I still maintain, because I musically try to be as politically neutral as possible, I maintain that it stands on its feet uh, artistically, meaning, to me, it, it's not a two-hour polemic about what an awful person Trump is. It's a story about a man, Comey, who has, and by the way, he's set up at the front as being described, not as a hero, but a showboater who's a bit vain, and, and uh, you know, he should have calmed down a bit and just kept his ego intact and just crack on with the, the technical functions of the job and not try to be such a, you know, an all-American hero. That gets, that's the first thing you hear. So it's right. not like he's set up as a hero and then, you know, you, you, you make your own mind up. But my point being to me and how I approached it musically was it's a story about a man who has a love affair with the FBI. He is... He has a love of the institution of the FBI, and he really believes in it. It's the love of an ideal. He believes in public service and in the independence of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, how that should not be polluted by anyone, regardless of whether it's Trump or any, that there are, you know, there are norms of how things should work. And, and he gives a great speech about why, you know, when he gets interviewed by Obama, it's like, well, why should I, you know, you supported McCain, I can't remember, you supported some Republican, you know, why would I hire right, you? Right. And in his interview, he gives this story that I won't bore everyone with, but it's to do with, you know, making money in the private sector is great, but uh, devoting my life to like catching the bad guys, some terrible incident happened in his childhood and uh, he was threatened 
and his house was broken into and they, you know, they nearly died and they never caught this guy. Mm. And it's like, I, I hate that. And I would love to be part of, and it's the, the, you know, catches the bad guys, you know, it's yeah, a sort yeah. of, the, it's, it's like the bureaucratic, technocratic version of a superhero. Only unlike Marvel movies, you can't do unrealistic things. You've got to just try and solve crime and try and make America a slightly safer place than it is, right? So that's the, that's the, the ideal. And then he happened to be around at an extraordinary time in American politics where he was, I think Billy did a brilliant job of demonstrating situations almost unimaginable in our careers where it does not matter what you do, you are screwed. Here are your four options. If you do this, it's gonna be really bad for this reason. Your other options to do this, that's gonna be a disaster because of this. You're right, this is to do with you know, the Hillary email thing. You know, here are your four options and none of them are good. You are screwed, whatever you do. Now, you know, as a film composer, there's usually an option where you can emerge triumphant. It's tricky, like the producer disagrees with the director, blah, 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 blah. You can get tricky situations, but ultimately you can pop out the other end with some piece of music that everyone seems to like, or, or the person who didn't like it and wanted to go in a different direction got told to shut up by someone, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't end up being forced into a position where the decision you make could have a massive political, electoral, and constitutional consequence for the world's largest democracy and most powerful country. <laughs> I mean, it's a really serious job where, yeah. and he happened to have it at a time where uh, the person who got elected to the White House for the first time was not a career professional politician, but a complete outsider whose approach to it was just anyone who thinks like, oh, you know, all, all the sort of lazy liberal thinking of like Trump's just an idiot, should go in a room with him with a plan that they had in their head and see what happens. Because you walk out going, what the hell just happened? Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, Comey would go into these meetings um, with the, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, the sort of professional uh, expectations and norms of a discussion with, uh, that would sure. ordinarily take place uh, as the director of the FBI and the president and was quickly finding that he was just all over the place. The, 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 the ground was just falling from under his feet as Trump was in, in like rapid fire asking questions and, and maneuvering into situations that, that really troubling from, from a constitutional point sure. of view. And so it's just not true. He's, he's, he's an extremely um, tricky customer. You know, if you think, I mean, if you think you can walk into a room with Trump and you're going to walk out getting everything you want, you're probably going to walk out and go, I've almost no idea what just happened, but I'm quite unsettled. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't know yeah. if you've read the, the John Bolton book. I have you know, not, no. I read that, but it's interesting because he's, I mean, he ended up leaving and I mean, John Bolton could hardly be described as a liberal. I mean, he's, he's a, no, he's no, a, no, hawk, yeah. a, a hawk, I mean, a highly intelligent and erudite man, but a hawkish right winger by anyone's standards including his own uh, ended up splitting the white house and his biggest complaint he, he from his from john Paul's point of view being a right winger and a hawkish person he actually didn't mind some of trump's instincts to do with you know um uh, being a bit stricter with china and 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 uh, you know his main things the foreign policy thing his complaint was it's just all over the place you know you, yeah. you, you try and form some sort of policy, and, and I'm not a politician, but you know, there's a way of going about things. By two o'clock, it's falling apart, and you're hearing from someone else, and nothing's done 
in the way it's ordinarily done. So you just, no one knows where they stand. The next thing you know, like the Taliban are being summoned onto a plane and he wants to hang out with them uh, at, at his place. And first, it's every norm and every way of doing things. Uh, it, it, it could last about five minutes before suddenly everything is upended. You know, it's like walking around, not on eggshells, but you started off on the floor and then you ended up on the ceiling. And so without getting into whose side anyone is on, the, what I was trying to do, my approach to, to do with music, was the um, opposing forces of a man who wanted to stand firm and fulfill his ideal dream of a job, which is that he loves the institution of the FBI and in the most idealistic sense, what that represents about what good a man can do or a woman can do as a public servant for the protection of the American people. And then on the other hand, a highly disruptive outside force that seeks to, to get out of the head of the FBI uh, a personal loyalty that's much more important to Trump, who sees the world much more just in direct personal terms, more like a, like a godfathery, you know, his view is much yeah. less technocratic and political, much more like, I want to have a meeting with you, I look you in the eye and you tell me you're going to do what I want, which is not exactly how it's supposed to work, you know. Right, right. And so it, it, it's, I just tried to, so I came up with a, it just, I've been waffling about all this politics, but. No, keep, it's great. <laughs> so instead of going, right, let's have baggy music for Trump and let's have heroic Captain America style music. The first counterintuitive thing that I thought of doing, because I remember talking with Billy and, and Jeff about it, the biggest mistake would be like, well, you know, let's get a sort of, um, uh, uh, an errand Copeland-esque 20th yeah. century influence. Oh, yeah. Brass chorale, you know, let's go for like, let's extract out of that 20th century concert music, the lofty ideals. Now, you know, it's not a terrible idea, but all, would, all that would happen is it would be instantly tilted. So like the minute Comey's on screen, before we've even got through this two hour episode, he's feeling like Captain America before he's even opened his mouth, you know? Yeah, yeah. And that's no good because, because it isn't as simple as that. And there are people who would argue that, you know, whilst he was a noble-minded person, if he just sort of um, had a slightly less high opinion of his own political merit and treated the job a bit more bureaucratically, he may not have got his, his knickers in such a twist, right? So right. You, you can't have something as, as redolent as something that would work for Captain America. So I, d I decided instead of rooting around and sort of copeland the fanfare for the common man, um, diatonic Americana. I had this really counterintuitive thought because I, like I said, I went to St. Paul's Cathedral. I love all that music of Talis and Orlando Gibbons and Palestrina, all this European um, uh, 16th century church music. The one thing that, now of course, <clears throat> not proposing <clears throat> to get a whole load of music sounding like an English cathedral choir with an organ, blah, blah, blah. I'm talking about yeah. harmony. The harmony of that music is somewhat modal and it feels different. It feels from a slightly different era. It's not the same as diatonic harmony without boring all your listeners. But the point is the origin of that music is devotional. The, the idea of that sort of church music was that it is in service of a greater thing. In the, in the case of 16th century music and in, in Protestant and Catholic music, in the service of God, it would have been for Palestrina and Talis and Gibbons. So there's a slight loftiness to it, but, uh, it's a long way from 
filmic heroic music that's born out of that sort of corn goldy copelandy you know? absolutely it's yeah, a yeah. totally different strain that comes from unegotistical music where composers were expected to write Kyrie les songs of glorious and sumptuous and unused day the idea being that there's a choir and the whole thing is in service of god right so uh, the idea of god so i thought uh, if i steal if i sort of rummage around in that area get a modal theme going which is what i did for Comey, but let's use piano and strings and get a long way from organ and cathedral i think it's going to have this feeling of something because don't forget that's also where arvo part you know the, the whole arvo part thing is a sort of re it's a 20th century renaissance mm -hmm. of of picking up some of the ideas of this um, early music and, and then obviously it's for orcs, but but so there is a 20th century precedent for it because the the you know European composers like Arvo Part definitely were making a 20th century revoicing of this devotional music that I'm talking about. So I, I had that in mind and you might think well why the hell are, you know it's an American so why the hell are you doing that but I think music doesn't really have geographic boundaries. I think what happens is if you listen to those Comey cues, it doesn't feel too personal. It doesn't feel too heroic. And you get that sense of a man who's devoted to duty, but nor does it sound too churchy because I got rid of the choir and the organ and got it on strings and piano. But there's this legacy of uh, a noble ideal, but without the personal heroism that we I didn't want to attach to Comey because then it's just a, oversimplified story if you do that like Comey is this wonderful man and Trump's a bad man and that's all it's about it's not about that no yeah it's about a guy trying to do his job and about the integrity of uh, democratic institutions versus a disruptive force that, that is coming at those institutions in a way that is not ordinarily associated with the president causing yeah. a lot of confusion and difficult situations so it's the same with Trump I didn't I had a bit of a rummage around for a while and any time, because you know how I love, we've always said this, I love dissonant harmony and I love yep, Sadovsky yep. and da, da, da. And so as soon as you've got a Predator movie or you know, anything where there's, <laughs> there's like badness at hand, I, I just go launching into to wander down the, the dissonant and, and you know, atonal stuff as far as I can go before the director stops me. You can't do any of that with Trump because it's just so cheesy. What are you saying? Like, yeah, yeah. The first time you get a Trump cue, you're just like gonna lay on all the dissonance and go, he's an evil man. I tried to do something very different, which was have something quite simple. I actually stayed in very diatonic harmony so that there's nothing overtly bad about it and trying mm. to make the Trump musical ideas more a seed of, because uh, I, I mean, to this extent, I wasn't neutral. The Trump music was how Trump affects Comey, right? right. So if, you, if you're a Trump supporter, you would have hoped for some sort of wonderful uplifting make America great music, but because of the nature of this story, the Trump effect within the story was a, as far as Comey was concerned, and as far as people trying to do their job in the way they had ordinarily done it, it was a sort of pervasive and slightly corrosive, or slightly, ultimately very corrosive effect. So I needed to come up with a musical idea that didn't feel evil, but that felt like an influence on Comey and his colleagues that was a bit slippery and a bit difficult to deal with, but not too overt, not, not, not bombastic. The, the, the character himself is bombastic enough. Right, right. The, the important thing to get across musically was more 
that because of the interactions with Trump, some underlying pervasive um, quality started to infiltrate how things ordinarily work. So if you were a computer programmer, it would be like, oh, well, we usually do the OS like this and it's all working. And then some other coder comes in like, wait a minute, what's going on? This guy's like started coding, but it's kind of messing up. Like, I don't know what he's done because it's like messing up <clears throat> my code. And now the graphics kind of, it's like, I don't really know what he's done, but like, I'm really confused and I'm not, I don't even know what language this coding's, you know, it's that sort of effect. Um, so I tried to be, and, and same with Billy and, and Jeff, I think the idea was, I mean, I'm sure if you were a very strong Trump supporter, you'd probably watch it and go, well, that felt very much like, you know, Trump wasn't here. Okay, well, fair enough. But I don't think you could say that the whole thing was a political polemic that just did its best to, um, um, you know, humiliate uh, Trump. I think the performance from Brendan Gleeson was fantastic. And I think- Oh, yeah, yeah. I think even Trump, uh, Trump supporters, <clears throat> very committed Trump supporters would have to concede that whatever he is, he's, he's a highly unconventional and disruptive. I mean, that's what they'd be proud of. You know, he's not, right, right. He's not a career, if you're expecting things to go smoothly and by convention, that's the exact opposite, you know, of what he is. So um, I think it's something that a show that could be enjoyed by uh, people who are relieved that he's no longer the president. <clears throat> it certainly could be enjoyed by anyone who's sort of politically neutral and just wants to watch a show that's actually a fascinating insight right. to what, <clears throat> what the hell happened to Comey in those incredibly stressful times. And, <clears throat> you know, maybe you're a bit annoyed if you're a full-blown Trump supporter, but I would hope they would watch it and go, look, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a decent presentation of what it felt like yeah, yeah. From, from Comey's point of view. Um, so, and musically, I get it. Um, I know I keep talking about all these narrative things, but musically, having got this um, devotional theme, like I say, that was influenced by some modal music and slightly avo partish tinge to it, and this other slightly snaky, pervasive kind of egg that I came up with for Trump, not dissimilar. To, it's, it's, it's like the opposite of Germanic. Whilst it was more thematic, it was another case of being understated because almost all of the scenes apart from the odd exterior shot of Trump Tower or <clears throat> you know a shot of the White House or something most scenes are people talking in an elevator on their way to having a meeting with Trump yeah. a, a meeting in Trump Tower a meeting back at the FBI you know they're all meetings so you can't be overblown yeah, I, I had to wait to the end of the second episode after he'd been fired when he's giving a quite emotional speech about Comey. This is about despite the fact he's been fired, he still wants to give a speech about what it means to work at the FBI and how grateful he is for the public service. That's the closest you guys like, come on, let me off the hook a bit here. You know, this is this is the this is his money moment. You know, it's not quite Jerry Maguire, but uh, you know. Right. <laughs> But uh, so I tried to retain a sort of ruthless tastefulness about how never to make Trump overblown. There should never be a musical cue that feels a bit like a Zemo cue from, you know, like Captain America. <laughs> Nor should there ever be a Comey cue where you feel like he's about to go and suit up and go get a shield. You know, it's, it's right, right. <laughs> the, the aesthetic 
borders, Kate, you know, have to come in a bit so that you respect the, you know, the authenticity of the writing and how realistic it was. Um, so, uh, yeah, I found it highly enjoyable. And I thought Billy and, and Jeff, I thought, I thought it was just a very smart, um, I, to me, almost the biggest achievement is, I mean, I don't know how people, I didn't actually spend that long looking at the reviews of it, but I would say that, I don't know if you agree with me, but someone who's not a political nerd would probably right. watch that and go, that was, that was really engaging. And I think that's really difficult to do very. Uh, I think it's very tricky to do. I think political films uh, in general, even if it's more, even if it's more traditional, maybe something like uh, JFK or something. But it's just like it's. Uh, but you've got a nuclear crime. The thing about JFK, where Billy's such a genius. The thing about JFK. Oh well, hang on. No, I, I'm thinking of uh, Twenty One, uh, which is the one over the Cuban Missile Crisis. That no, I've I've misrepresented. I, I was thinking of the the movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis. What was that called? That was Kevin Costner. Oh, because it of course involved JFK, who was the president at the time. Anyway, yeah, the, yeah, point, yeah. the point being, those are bigger canvases. It's still tricky to make. Sure, those, sure. This is those. a very yeah. You're speaking. They're all in rooms. They're yes. all talking, and, and it's, it's a completely very... different. And I think as a composer too, it's tricky because you're navigating these performances, and these performances are really good. Especially Brendan Gleeson. I mean, that's a tricky to oh, not yeah. do Trump and be a caricature. Is you know versus like you know whatever Alec Baldwin on Saturday Night Live. You right, know, right. So, it's not. <laughs> It's not an impersonation, but you need right. en you need enough of the physical characteristics and the little mannerisms and ticks and whatnot to just put yourself there as an actor, so that people accept it as Trump. Yeah. But then you know, it's not an impersonation; it's a dramatic right. performance. I mean, the guy's a genius. Oh, people so play, good. I mean, he's played he played Churchill in the you know obviously the Gary Oldman Churchill in that more recent one, so celebrated. But people shouldn't forget Brendan. Gleason played uh, Churchill, one of the HBO, and and you know he he just melds merges into the character. So good, you know? yeah. He's one of my favorite right. actors. Yeah, you're right. When you have performances like that, you you you've got to be you got to be careful uh, in terms of not being intrusive. Mm -hmm. yeah. But Billy, between you know, uh, with the spotting and just collaborating with Billy and Jeff, the picture editor, you know, we we just found our way through because if anything I think at first we were so sparse that there wasn't actually enough music we'd spotted it so respectfully and then we we just found we could open it up a little bit but it was really tricky to find like where the yeah where, where the needle kind of jumps to exactly. eh, okay it's too much now <laughs> yeah exactly it was a bit of trial and error and you have to sort of watch it down from the top it's amazing how little straw breaks the camel's back yeah absolutely <laughs> But um, I mean, the film, I think, turned out fantastic, or the miniseries turned out fantastically. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and of course, everything that we've talked about uh, since last time we talked, I've always enjoyed. And so, Henry, thank you again for another amazing chat. Thank it's you. always a pleasure to, to talk with you, my friend. So, um, yeah, thanks again for Thank you. Well, I'm, glad to, I'm glad that you're healthy. <laughs> Stay healthy, because I think the numbers are going up. So, they are. We're, we're staying put. Um, yeah, I'm working from home probably until the next summer, so we'll see. Well, you know, let's see what happens with some of these vaccines. Uh, you know, yeah. that while we're all doing our thing, there are some really smart people who've probably been cranking from yes. 7 a.m. to 11 since March. 
and uh, you know they're not sitting on their hands, and they're some really smart people. So they're all going to save our asses for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At some point, something. I have great confidence in uh, medical medical genius. So we'll 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 see. Hopefully, it won't be that long. Absolutely. Well, Henry, I hope you have a, a great rest of the year, safe rest of the year, holidays and everything. So yeah, uh, yeah. I don't talk and to you, you till then. Yeah. So it's good to chat. And, uh, thank you very much. <laughs>